Local Selection, the podcast on a quest to make local representation sexy. I'm Brian Hastert, and our guest today is Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. One of the main functions of a state Secretary of State is to oversee the mechanisms of democracy, including voter registration, the actual voting process, and vote counting. This means that Jocelyn Benson, who was sworn into office in 2019, was in charge of defending the democratic process from one of the worst attacks on it in our lifetimes. Good thing she is literally the author of a book called State Secretaries of State, Guardians of the Democratic Process. Look, it's not just that Jocelyn Benson has been preparing herself for years to defend democracy from attacks, which she has. It's that she also is deeply immersed in the specific threat that I would argue is our chief threat at the moment, white supremacy. You'll hear some of this in the interview, but here's a quick overview of her background. As a Marshall Scholar getting her master's degree at Oxford, Jocelyn conducted research on the sociological implications of white supremacy. And from there, she went to Alabama to work for the Southern Poverty Law Center, where she, you guessed it, researched white supremacist and neo-Nazi hate groups. And then on to Harvard Law, where she focused her legal training on civil rights and election laws. She also served as a general editor for the Harvard Civil Rights Civil Liberties Law Review and was the voting rights policy coordinator for the Harvard Civil Rights Project, during which time she contributed to the passage of the Help America Vote Act. I mean, if you could summon someone from a f***ing book of spells perfectly suited to serve the moment of Michigan 2020 election, you would still come up short of Jocelyn Benson. In our last episode, I introduced a perspective that, that you know, the more of these episodes and interviews that I, I do, the more evidence for this I see. That local, county, and state-level governments have become this country's most efficient executors of white supremacy. But this is the first episode where I actually ask someone who sits in one of those powerful offices to respond to that perspective. And it's kind of an intense theory to pose to someone who works atop state government. And I admit, I was a little nervous to say it. But I'm excited for you to hear her response. Offices like the one Jocelyn Benson occupies are in charge of the mechanisms for voting, which means that in the right hands, the office holder uses their powers to ensure greater access to the most fundamental of democratic rights, and works hard to make sure everyone has a voice in the creation and the recreation of the systems that govern them. In the wrong hands, well, people use their awesome powers to silence entire communities, which can change the course of life not just for the disenfranchised folks themselves, but everyone in their state, everyone in our country, even the wider world. What do I mean when I say that? Well, In the interview, Jocelyn drops the names of two infamous state secretaries of state, Catherine Harris and Kenneth Blackwell. And one day, I will devote an entire episode to the anti-democratic acts of these two individuals. And that's not a promise. That's a threat. It's going to be gruesome for everybody. There is way too much of that to get into now. But suffice to say... Catherine Harris was in charge of voting for the state of Florida in the 2000 election, and Kenneth Blackwell was in charge of voting in the state of Ohio in the 2004 election. After Catherine Harris did everything in her considerable power to destroy and distort the voting apparatus for 
certain communities in Florida, the 15-million-person state was decided by 537 votes. If the state-level office that Katherine Harris held had been occupied instead by someone like Secretary Jocelyn Benson, we would never have launched the disastrous Iraq War because we would not have had a president who was ready to lie this nation into an illegal war in the first place. Four years later, Kenneth Blackwell did everything his office would allow him to do to destroy fair voting in the state of Ohio, and it worked. The details range from him defying a state law regarding access to provisional ballots to a controversy around bringing in debold electronic voting machines, a move that would ensure, A, that Blackwell's personally held stock in the company would benefit, B, that Diebold CEO Wally O'Dell could make good on his in-writing commitment, quote, to helping Ohio deliver its electoral votes to the president, end quote, meaning President Bush. And C, there would be no paper trail for any of it. And there have been many, many articles written compiling the evidence that the 2004 election was stolen And all of them run through Ohio and end in Ken Blackwell's office. Remember the global Great Recession of 2008? That was brought to you in large part by the powers of a state-level elected official. And if Brian Kemp had still been Secretary of State in Georgia in 2000 instead of sitting in the governor's mansion that, and I'll just go ahead and say it, that he used his office to steal from Stacey Abrams, the Georgia 2020 results could easily have turned out differently. And I'm not even talking just about the presidency here. I'm talking about control of the United States Senate. Remember, local politics is local until it is national, until it is international. Honestly, we are all extremely fortunate that Jocelyn Benson was the person in charge of Michigan's voting in 2020. It was a crucial state, and it was under assault. She led her state not only through an unprecedented political attack, but she has also weathered political violence. It was her Michigan colleague, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who was the target of a foiled right-wing kidnapping and execution plot. Jocelyn Benson is a lot more than a sure-footed guardian of the democratic process. When she was made dean of the Wayne State University Law School at 36 years old, she became the youngest woman ever to head a top 100 law school. She is a major advocate for women's sports and is herself a marathon runner. And in the midst of our current nationwide assault on voting rights at the state level, I asked whether I should feel hope that it will get better or fear that it will get worse. Jocelyn Benson is the person whose answer I will believe. Madam Secretary, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I am really, really excited to talk to you this morning. I feel like there's so much, and I know we have a brief time because you have a very important job. Uh, But first, I just wanted to ask you, what are you working on right now? What is the most sort of central thing that is on your agenda these days? Well, three things, actually, most of which are in continuation of our work protecting democracy. And in 2020, I mean, I think in a nutshell, the election of 2020 is behind us, but the work and really the battle over the future of our democracy is is just beginning. 
And so we're seeing new front lines emerge in that battle, particularly in state legislatures all around the country. And so policy that is good and advances democracy and protects the vote is the heart of what I'm advocating for and working towards right now here in Michigan and also at the federal level. And then in addition to that in Michigan, the second thing I've been focusing on is we have our first Citizens Redistricting Commission meeting now. It's been work we've done over the the past two years, but they're actually now assembled and beginning the process of preparing to draw the next generation of legislative districts in our state. And so my office is, is helping to support and manage that process. And then the other thing that we're beginning to focus on is, well, we're continuing to upgrade our customer service. I also oversee the DMV in Michigan. And so all licenses, all vehicle plates, I'm very popular, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. So you're, you're <laughs> Everyone loves, many. loves yeah. coming to see me. Um, <laughs> but we're, we're modernizing how we do business and really trying to think broadly about how we, you know, even just the idea that we have to put stickers on our license plates or even have license plates at all uh, at a time when there's new technologies emerging uh, and how we get around uh, is something whoa, we're trying whoa. to revisit. That's a huge um, idea. So yeah, so we're, we're exploring all those things and doing that work. And then um, also, you know, we had more people vote than ever before in Michigan in November, but 2 million still stayed home and who were eligible to vote. So we want to spend some time digging into that and find ways to continue to grow and increase the level of engagement of all of our citizens across the state. Yeah, 2 million people is a lot of people to be sitting on their hands at such a crucial time. Yeah, and and we want to celebrate the fact that more people voted than ever before, but with not without continuing to look at, you know, the 80 million people throughout the country who stayed home and the 2 million here in Michigan who were eligible to vote but chose not to and to really kind of understand why and what we could perhaps do better to make voting more accessible to everybody. So, in 2010, you wrote a book in what I think has got to be the most like incredible case of manifesting I've ever seen. <laughs> you wrote a book called State Secretaries of State, Guardians of the Democratic Process. That was 11 years ago you wrote that book. You weren't elected until 2018 to be the Michigan Secretary of State. What do you think changed for how you guard the democratic process between when you wrote the book in 2010 which was already a pretty intense time because the redistricting that happened in 2010 was the, you know, set the ground for the rest of the decade, right? So between 2010 and now, especially after this past election, what do you think has changed? What have you learned? Well, I mean, it sort of harkens back to where this professional journey began for me, which was starting my career in Montgomery, Alabama, investigating hate groups and hate crimes around the country in the late 90s. Right, you worked at the and, Southern Poverty Law Center, didn't you? Yes, yeah, and and but spending so much time there and particularly going to Selma and, and really being at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge and feeling a deep sense of responsibility to continue the work of those who have come before us to protect democracy, knowing, as John Lewis has said, that democracy is a verb. It's a state of, state of constant um, protection and, and each generation is required to renew the work to protect it. And so wanting to really find my place in that, I became a lawyer and um, wanted to do voting rights law. And then the 2000 election happened. And that is really what, to me, began to change everything, to get to your question, in terms of how 
we realize elections are administered and democracy must be protected. Now, in that election, it was a close election in Florida, where the Secretary of State, then Catherine Harris, made specific decisions that impacted in a negative way the outcome of that election. And, oh, yes. That um, was the first election I was old enough to vote in the 2011. <laughs> I, I yeah. will never forget it. Yeah, I think uh, there are, there is a whole generation traumatized by this realization that we could vote and yet somehow democracy could be undermined by, in this case, the courts and the Secretary of State. And so I wanted to become a lawyer essentially to protect against that from happening and and also, you know, started to see how these secretaries of state play this key role and wrote the book several years later after the 2004 election, again, reiterated how secretaries of state, this time in particular in Ohio, Ken Blackwell made decisions like not accepting certain voter registrations from eligible right. voters if they weren't on the right paper or not putting right. enough voting machines in Cleveland, leading to eight hour lines. And so you see how these administrative decisions impact an election and impact whether people's votes are counted. So I wrote the book to try to communicate to voters everywhere, look, you choose who runs your elections. Pay attention to what they can do to improve your vote. And here are some things that are actually are going on in a positive way of what secretaries of state are doing to engage citizens and protect and guard democracy. And so that, that work of secretaries of state has been ongoing for a number of years, decades. And my interest in the office came really after writing the book, realizing that it's up to all of us to try to lead where we can. And I felt that I really wanted to lead from that position. So I actually ran in 2010 for Secretary of State in Michigan and was unsuccessful, as all Democrats were in 2010. But what that really did was um, really prepare me for running and winning in 2018. And it was also an interesting lesson of how even a quote-unquote loss can be a win because it enabled me to spend really the next eight years becoming even more prepared for the moment in which I I was elected to serve. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, you know, really prepared me to go through the fire that I went through in 2020. Yeah, boy, the fire you went through. I mean, you and the governor of your state, you know, the things you have endured are mind-blowing to me. And here you are still working to make things (laughs) better. So hopefully we don't have to go through it again. It is so exciting to hear you talk about how you have understood for a long time that the democratic process was really something we had to secure at the state level, right? It's not, the federal laws obviously matter a great deal. The Voting Rights Act is very important, but the execution of elections and the counting of ballots and the rollout of all the process, that happens at the state level and at county levels and things. I guess for me, I have come to really believe that in this country, white supremacy is most successfully executed at local levels and state levels. That's in terms of redlining, that's in terms of education, that's in terms of voting voting rights, maybe first and foremost. And I know that your background, you have done a lot. Am I correct that when you got your master's degree at Oxford, not to name drop, you studied the sociological implications of white supremacy and neo-Nazism, mm-hmm. is that true? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then like you mentioned before, you did work with the Southern Poverty Law Center, which tracks this stuff. So I'm wondering with all of the work you've done, you know, in your studies, academically, professionally, and now, you know, in this position, how do you see white supremacy at work in the Michigan state, you know, legal apparatus? Well, I think it all gets this to this question of power and who has power and why. And the fact that we have a constitution that defines 
that through the lens of equity and equality, that everyone has equal access and everyone is entitled to equal treatment under the law. One person, one vote, all these things that are tied up in the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause. So to me, I think it starts there in sort of defining the principles, defining the ideal, which is everyone has a voice and every voice should be protected and treated equally. And then, you know, to the extent that race plays a role in justifying in some cases or enabling inequality or inequity or simply just unconscious bias permeates throughout our institutions in a way that changes the level of the playing field in a way that's unfair and unjust and contrary to those principles in our constitution. All of that manifests itself in lots of different ways throughout history. And I think it's important whether it comes to voting or education or access to healthcare, or as you mentioned, redlining and, and geographic integration and segregation to see the connectivity between history and today and how we got to where we are and why. And so many times it's really the people who comprise our government institutions that really can determine whether we make decisions unconsciously or consciously to reinforce past discriminatory or other decisions that furthered inequality or whether we break that cycle. And my work has really been about trying to break that cycle wherever we are, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a teacher, whether you're in a government institution, but certainly electing leaders to government institutions that can be committed to overcoming those historical institutional inequalities and racism and really putting us on a path towards greater equality and through that prosperity, I think is what the battlefront is. And of course, anytime you try to break a cycle or change things or overcome institutional norms in that way, you're faced with resistance. And that's where you have white supremacy and other things emerging in different ways. Well, and I think that you know, Michigan was so, and we all knew in advance of the 2020 election, Michigan was going to play a central role, but wow, was it <laughs> watch the way that unfolded. Wayne County. So I, I got a real lesson in county names. I don't think about counties, <laughs> generally speaking. I didn't know that Detroit was part of Wayne County. That's a thing I learned recently. Everyone knows it now. <laughs> and you can't, you can't help but know it now because Wayne County got a lot of airtime in, oh, the second week of November. Uh, in 2020 because there were people who were working to actively, I mean, do you want to talk about what, what the hubbub around Wayne County was in November? Well, in its purest state, it was an issue of administration where Wayne County is the largest, most populous county in the state of Michigan. And every county, every one of our 83 counties has a process that it goes through in the two weeks following election day where they canvass all of the procedures within the county and then affirm the results of the election, and then that goes on to the state canvassing board. And what happened in Wayne County is they, remember, had more people, more work to do than any other county, but the same resources in the same time that everyone had. And so they didn't have time to explain every detail and procedure that occurred. And what emerged in the county canvas was an effort to exploit that to say that therefore something wrong had occurred because you couldn't explain why, for example, um, the number of, of ballots distributed may be different than the number of ballots voted in a particular precinct, which oftentimes happens when someone shows up to vote in a precinct and then is in the wrong precinct and then they go to the right precinct. And so there's always ways to explain that, but they ran out of time to explain that to the Wayne County canvas and some of the leaders in that 
Wayne County Canvas then used that to sow seeds of doubt about what happened, quote unquote, and and to allow for false narratives of voter fraud and other wrongdoings to take hold. And so again, it was essentially an example of people using their platforms wrongly to spread misinformation about the accuracy of the elections. And our work right now is to kind of correct the idiosyncrasies on the back end, like giving our Wayne County canvassers more time to do all this work that they have to do to present their election results to the Wayne County Canvas Board for certification so that they can answer all these questions ahead of time. But essentially what happened in Wayne County is that they hadn't answered all those questions ahead of time because they ran out of time. And then the canvassing board used that to say, well, we're not going to certify, which is not really what their job is. But again, that's really just reinforces why the people who comprise our government institutions must be ones of integrity, as opposed to those we saw willing to use their positions to thwart democracy in a way that became a battlefront for all of us to endure over the months around the election. Right. And I am I right that the board of canvassers, those are elected positions? Uh, Appointed by political parties. And um, what's now happened is particularly the Republican Party in Michigan has is trying to, I think, leverage that potentially for future elections. And then the fact that they recommend or influence who's appointed to these roles, which are actually really clearly cut in the law, the roles. They have a responsibility to affirm the election, and it's really the clerks who have the most subjective role in evaluating and correcting any issues or performing an audit. The canvassers are really more of a ministerial role, but now they're being misused to um, potentially undermine democracy. And it really just underscores why we all have to stay vigilant. I think that's the bottom line. As you mentioned, the work to protect people happens at the local level. The work to empower people happens at the local level. And the work to disenfranchise and disempower people will also play out at the local level. We're seeing that in states across the country. We're seeing that in Georgia and Arizona. We saw that in Wayne County. And so we have to focus on the local level and work on the local level to protect all citizens, to protect all voters, because certainly there's people on the other side working to do the opposite. And that's been true throughout history, and it's no less true now. Uh, Bless you for saying that so clearly. Madam Secretary, I know we have short time, so before we let you go, I just wanted to give you the chance to to leave our listeners with uh, whatever you think is the most important thing for them to walk away with on this lovely spring day. (laughs) I think stay engaged and to know that the efforts to undermine and deny democracy that we all lived through these past year and that culminated in the tragic events in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, that battle is not over. Perhaps there is a break. It is not as intense or urgent as it was during that moment. And and indeed, the 2020 election is in the rearview mirror. But the forces that have been in play throughout our country's history to undermine people's voices and deny democracy are still present and will continue to try to find ways to further their own goals, their autocratic goals of undermining our democratic process. And the only way we prevent them from being successful is by continuing to stay vigilant and protect our democracy every day, every month, every year. And so stay engaged, keep voting, pay attention to decisions made large and small that affect your communities and, and lead where you are, wherever you are 
in trying to seek a better world because that's the only way we'll ever get there. That, that is so beautifully said. Let me just ask you one more thing. I've been reading that according to the Brennan Center, there are something like 165 bills proposed in legislative bodies around the country to restrict voting rights, to make voting harder for certain people. I read that, you know, that's happening in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Texas, that's happening all over the place. And it, frankly, it scares me because we don't necessarily have people in higher office in some of those places to overturn those laws. Where we are right now, do you see reason to hope that we will get through this and make it better and get everyone involved, not even just some, but like all Americans will get to participate in the new Yes, I have enormous hope because it's true that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. As Martin Luther King said on the steps of the Montgomery Capitol building, after hundreds and thousands of individuals from all across the country had marched 60 miles from Selma to Montgomery in support of the right to vote, and that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Every step throughout history, though it's been tumultuous and met with, um, in some cases, even violence, every step has brought us closer to that ideal of a full, accessible democracy. And every step of the way, democracy has prevailed. It prevailed in 2020. We were successful in ensuring that an election in the midst of a pandemic where more people voted than ever before ruled the day. That gives me hope, but I know how fragile and precarious that hope is and that work is because our success is ultimately determined by whether individuals all across the country will make the personal decision to commit to protecting our process and protecting our democracy. And if we let down our guard, then others will quickly fill the void with bad actions and bad actors. But if we stay vigilant, the law is on our side, the truth is on our side, the constitution is on our side, and history is on our side in a way. And for all those reasons, I have hope. Thank you so much for reassuring me. (laughs) Sure. Well, thank you for the work you do. I mean, we all have work to do in this in in furtherance of protecting our democracy. And I think that's really the most important thing for us all to decide. Will we be a part of that vigilance and that protection? And through doing so, whatever we do, wherever we are, we'll be having an impact and, and helping to further the needs of our democracy to make sure every vote is counted and every voice is heard. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And it was really exciting to hear your thoughts on all this. Yes, my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Emerald O'Brien. Theme music by the Castell Brothers. A huge thank you to Secretary Jocelyn Benson for joining us today. You can find her on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Jocelyn Benson. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Local Selection, and on Instagram, at Local Selection Podcast. I mentioned in the intro that there have been a ton of articles written about the potential election theft in Ohio in 2004, so I'm going to link to a couple of those in the show notes. Pour yourself a glass of ancient grudge and prepare to break to new mutiny when you read. If you liked what you heard in this, please help us get the word out by sharing the podcast with a friend, giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to the feed so that you can catch new episodes right when they come out. A couple of other ways that you can support? Let everyone know that you think local representation is sexy by visiting our merch store and wearing it on a t-shirt, tote bag, or apron. And lastly, please consider visiting our Patreon 
where you can sign up to be a monthly supporter starting for the price of about a latte a month. We appreciate it a ton and it makes this podcast sustainable so I can keep bringing you the inspiring work of amazing local level leaders like Jocelyn Benson. Links to both the merch store and the Patreon in this episode's show notes and on our website, localselectionpodcast.com. Thank you for joining us today. See you next time in a new neighborhood.